Greetings, viewers and listeners. I'm Joseph Minnick, and you are tuning into the Maiden Voyage of the Pilgrim Faith podcast, sponsored by the Davenant Institute. The, the goal of this new series of podcasts is to have open-ended conversations with mostly Protestant evangelical teachers and scholars about a host of topics that vex contemporary Christians and which require extraordinary wisdom in order to navigate well. Uh, we're taking for granted, then, that the wise path is sometimes unclear to us, uh, albeit in, uh, in ways that are, uh, rise from a common cultural and historical situation that we're, we're trying to work through together. Um, we have questions about how to interpret the Bible, about how the Bible relates to extra-biblical data points on various issues, and how both relate to contemporary life. Uh, not as reduced to, to some label like the, this postmodern era or something like this, but but just as the circumstance out of which we think about anything at all. Um, I, I suspect that if you stick around, you'll, you'll enjoy yourself and feel aided in your own attempt to work through these questions as well. Uh, and also as a bonus, there are a few places where you can both gain theological education and feel like you're listening to a relative of Kermit the Frog at the same time. So, so there's also that. <laughs> in any case, in this, in this first episode, I'm joined by my, my good friend, Alistair Roberts, who has a PhD in biblical studies from Durham University in the UK. He has written uh, a book on the Exodus motif in the Bible recently and has a forthcoming work, uh, we hope, uh, it's been in the wing for several years, <laughs> on a biblical theology of the sexes. Alistair is also a frequent blogger and has his own excellent podcast, which I encourage you to check out. Uh, there you can get more of his unique wisdom on a host of cultural and theological issues. So, Al Alistair, thanks for joining me as the guinea pig interviewee in this thing. Thank you very much for inviting me. <laughs> oh, my pleasure. Um, it, you know, in, in some ways, this episode serves as a kind of conversation about method and trying to work through difficult ideas and, and cultural issues. And the reason I wanted to, to talk to you about this is because I, I perceive you to be one of those rare persons who treats scripture with a great deal of reverence and is also deeply drunk at its well and had it shape your mind and imagination. Um, but, you're, but you're also a person who seeks to know a lot of extra biblical content and has put a lot of effort into crafting an illuminating conversation between the Bible and other sources of knowledge. So what, I, what I'm wanting to do is talk a little bit about how to do that well, and then we'll try and cash those general principles out in, the, in a concrete discussion of gender as maybe a, a first thing to, thing to get at about which we need wisdom. Um, so uh, starting with this question, Alistair, is, is there a, a general way to describe how, how Christians ought to think about the relationship between biblical and extra biblical data? Uh, maybe one way of asking that is what, what pitfalls are, what pitfalls are, are possible here? And just to, to kind of throw out a couple of initial options, um, it seems that one often taken approach is a kind of trump card method where, where one set of data automatically falsifies another set with, with biblicists on one side and, and accommodationists on the other. Um, and another approach might be to so separate uh, what, what either source is even allowed to be talking about, to, to theorize the relation between biblical and extra-biblical data such that the, the Bible only talks about the gospel and some moral principles, uh, and the rest of life and its tricky bits belong in the, the realm of human reason. Uh, so potential conflict is foreclosed by sort of shoving each bit of revelation into its proper sphere. But I suspect for, for you and I and many others, neither of these options are terribly satisfying. And so could you make some comments on this? Uh, what do you think is the, 
the best way to speak about how the Bible and other sources of knowledge are related? Well, I think the Bible itself gives us a lot of insight into how to use it well, because the biblical writers are not just giving us direct revelation from God. They are engaging in reflection upon the world themselves. And so they present us with an example of, among other things, how to read the Bible itself, how to engage with and reflect upon reality. So if you're reading the book of Proverbs, for instance, the author of the Proverbs, Solomon, and then other writers are reflecting upon their experience. They're reflecting upon nature, upon the world around them. And through that reflection, arriving at some sort of moral insight. Now that moral insight is not something that arises purely from a naive approach to reality and this belief that merely approaching reality and reflecting upon it, you can derive these moral insights. That is a difficult thing to do. One of the things that I think we have in scripture is a text and revelation that attunes us to reality. And so when we approach reality, we're not approaching reality from that naive um, position, but from the position of those who have already been attuned to the structure of reality by divine teaching. Now, I think perhaps a good place to go to think about this is something like the book of Deuteronomy, where God declares to his people, or Moses declares to the people, that as the nations round about them see them practicing the law, and teaching that law, that they will wonder at their wisdom, their insight mm. into reality. And that, I think, discloses, in part, the connection between the moral law that we encounter in places like Deuteronomy, the explicit divine law that is given in the um, Ten Commandments. The Decalogue is this crystallization of these moral principles. But that Decalogue, that moral law, is also connected with natural law. This is part of the logic of reality. And so if you understand the Decalogue, if you understand how that's unpacked within the rest of Deuteronomy, and that's one of the things that you see in Deuteronomy, that you have the Ten Commandments, and then following that you have ten sections devoted to a rough articulation or expounding and unpacking of what those Ten Commandments mean. And so it invites reflection, meditation, and chewing over what exactly these commandments entail, that the commandments are not just given to us in this raw form of 10 words, but they're given to us in this far more articulated and developed form of these speeches. And those speeches help us to understand what does it mean to honor the sixth commandment, for instance, you shall not kill. How can we understand the deeper logic of that? And as you do that, you start to understand, I think, not just the logic of a literary text, but part of the logic of the world itself. And so what I believe that scripture teaches at that sort of point is that scripture illumines nature, that scripture is not this body of material, it's just this imposed um, legal system that's arbitrary and just um, we can't make sense of it but rather it's something that gives us insight into the way the world really works. So when you get to the book of Proverbs, the writer of Proverbs can reflect upon the experience of the person who commits adultery. That adultery is not just described in terms of a, a blanket prohibition, it's described in terms of the incipience of that sin, the path that it leads people on, and the ultimate destination. And the writer of Proverbs is reflecting upon 
what is the character of this sin? What does it produce in people? Where does it find its purchase upon people? And those things are found through reflection upon reality, particularly over time, that this is not uh, an immediate connection between uh, commandment and consequence right. or direct connection between a commandment and say things will be best for you um, if you obey this. It's a recognition that these patterns work out over longer periods of time and you can discern the good of something or the evil of something by paying attention to that movement from the seeds to its fruits. Right, right. And uh, what, you, what you've just discussed in some way uh, gets at the relationship from one angle, which is the way in which, which scripture illuminates nature. Do you, do you see a, a reciprocal relation as well? Is there a way in which uh, nature also illuminates scripture? Is there, is there a way in which we can say that as well? Absolutely. And I think that is seen in part in the fact that once we've worked towards wisdom and once we've approached the world in the light of scriptural teaching, we begin to realize that scripture itself is grounded upon a natural order. It presupposes a natural order. When we're engaging in proverbs and reading wisdom literature, we're seeing reflection upon that natural order that is derived from a posture that is illuminated by the law, but it's not entirely provided by the law. This is the sort of work that we see taking place in the pagans as well. You'll see Aristotle, Confucius, other people like that. They're also engaging in this reflection upon reality and coming up on many occasions with similar observations and insights because the world itself contains these patterns. But yet without the divine revelation, we can't see them as clearly. We can't be as tuned right. to them as effectively. But yet, that movement the other direction is important. And I think this is something that comes up a lot in current debates, where people right. forget the groundedness of the moral law within the natural law. And as a result, begin to think that the biblical commandments are arbitrary, don't understand right. that they have a lot, more a lot greater implications than they might otherwise realize. And also that they provide an example for us of how to read the world that we should follow and go further than the explicit examples that we find in scripture. This is something right. I've argued even in the context right. of reading scripture in terms of typology. Many people are wary of any suggestion that there might be typologies that aren't explicitly pointed out in scripture. So we can say that Christ is like um, the Passover lamb or that baptism is like Noah's Ark because scripture says those things explicitly. But we right. can't say that Christ is like Joseph because scripture does not explicitly say that. But yet, if we're following the example of the apostles and the evangelists, we can say that. We can go use their example of reading scripture and then go back and read the Old Testament and see these sorts of connections. Likewise with the reading of the world, that we don't just depend upon God saying, this is what the world order means. We follow the example of Proverbs and other writers of wisdom, when they are going to the world and seeing these things. Proverbs wasn't dictated by God. Proverbs was the writing of illuminated people who had their understandings illuminated by the Spirit to be able to see things that were actually in the world. And in the right. same way, we should be following their example. Now, we don't have the guarantees that we'll always see things with accuracy. Mm -hmm. Whereas when we're reading Proverbs, we know that this is divinely inspired, illuminated scripture. Right. But 
we are supposed to follow that example and to go to the world to learn that the world itself contains these patterns. And then when you read scripture in light of that, you begin to see that um, there's a structure, the moral structure is the tip of an iceberg that we're supposed to be investigating. We're supposed to be getting into depth, into the logic of these things, trying to understand how does the world resonate with these words? And how, do the, how does the world illuminate these worlds on, words on the other hand? There's a, a meeting of these two witnesses. So we have the witness of the natural law and the witness of the explicit moral law and the biblical testimony. And bringing those two witnesses together leads to recognition on both sides that we can have a deeper insight into reality, but also a deeper insight into scripture. Yeah, I'm reminded as you as you say that of, of a couple of passages in Christ and in Paul, or I should say in the Gospels and in Paul. Uh, but it's interesting when Christ talks about the Sabbath that he he treats the uh, what what might have seemed like to Pharisees like an exception on the Sabbath as something that should have been just very obvious to them. Um, and what's interesting is sometimes when we talk about the Sabbath in our own day, we sort of use those passages as sort of proof texts, right? Uh, you know, obey the yep. Sabbath, ex except in this case and in this case. Uh, and yet it seems as though Christ is, uh, and, and I'm not saying that that tradition is wrong or that it's an unwise reading, but it's interesting that the, the way Christ approaches that moral question isn't necessarily by means of, and we know this is true uh, because proof text. Uh, now he does give an example of David, don't get, he, he does, but he, he also seems to appeal to this as though it's something that should just be obvious to a wise person. Uh, given the nature of the Sabbath and this sort of thing. And you have a similar inflection in Paul. We sometimes sort of proof text Paul about certain things, but Paul can say things like, you know, doesn't nature itself teach you? You know, yep. shouldn't this be obvious to you? Uh, and that, you, the point there you don't is, need a Bible verse. <laughs> the point there is if you have not got this from nature, then you've not been paying attention. It's out there, guys. And you should be right. learning these things from this source. And it's the similar thing that you see within the examples of typology that the gospel writers um, the epistles elsewhere there is this assumption that you will already have picked up these things if you're a good right if you're a good reader this shouldn't need to be spelled out for you when you're right. looking through the book of deuteronomy it is training you to see these sorts of connections these deeper logic this deeper logic to the commandments so for instance the 10th commandment um, shall not covet is connected with a series of commandments concerning a celebration that you throw a celebration that you throw you invite all your relatives you invite the levites you invite people in need the stranger the orphan the widow etc and you give thanks to god for all the things that he has given to you and you express contentment joy thanksgiving and gratitude and that's the antidote to covetousness but when you've seen those two things together, what you're seeing is a deeper investigation of the reality of human nature, the reality of how the law addresses that in a right. far more subtle way than um, you have within the law by itself, just the Ten Commandments taken by themselves, removing all the other material. And when Christ right. deals with these issues in um, the Sermon on the Mount and elsewhere, he's engaging in precisely that sort of reflection trying to reveal the deeper logic that is found in bringing the natural law into dialogue with the moral law and reflecting upon what is the deeper logic of righteousness here. Right, right. Um, 
if I could then, uh, if we could try to sympathetically raise some some potential concerns here, you know, on a, on a couple of registers, um, I can imagine some people saying that uh, uh, allowing nature to inform the text or allowing extra biblical data to sort of send us back into the text uh, allows what is not the Bible to set the agenda for the Bible. I think a lot of people are concerned about this. And how do you think we can discern when that's a fair or an unfair criticism or a, a legitimate or illegitimate concern? Certainly, if we're using what's not the text to trump what is the text, there is a problem there. Um, the text is authoritative in the way that our judgments from nature are not. And there we need to distinguish also between the text, which has a clarity and immediacy and a directness in its revelation, to the less direct judgments that we can have upon reality that are mediated by a great many other things besides um, just reading a clear statement of scripture. Now, clearly there are processes of interpretation that must take place even when we're reading scripture, but they're far less involved than the ones that we have when we're reading the natural right. world. That's right. And so that's the first thing that there's a clarity to scripture that there is not to the natural order on the same in the, not a clarity to us. Now that doesn't mean that nature is a completely disordered place that there's no sense to be found in it, but we are people who are fallible, limited, um, blinded by sin, by our own creaturely limitations. And so we will struggle to see within nature with the same clarity that we need to make certain judgments. The other thing is that we can often fail to recognize the statements concerning the good in scripture and the way that those actually cash out in prudential judgments. It's not always clear how you get from one to another. So mm. for instance, I could say that it's good to show charity to people, but that doesn't really help me that much when it comes to the question right. of to whom should I show charity? Right. In what way should I show charity? And what are the limits of charity? All of those sorts of prudential questions require a different process of deliberation and aren't just settled by reflection upon the good in a more abstract sense. So I think those are concerns. Many people would try and collapse the prudential um, considerations into the more absolute voice of the authoritative presentation of the good. So I think that is particularly a concern for pastors, where from the pulpit right. you can present not just the basic principle but the suggestion that this means you must vote for this particular candidate, you must right. buy these particular products, you must, whatever it is. And those determinations are nowhere near as clear as right. Right. the uh, fundamental principles yeah. and goods. And so that sort of distinction, I think, is one that keeps things carefully bounded. Right, right. Um, taking that, that kind of register of concern from another angle then, or, or an opposite concern, um, what about those who... Uh, you know, you could you could think of those who are maybe even uh, out either outside the Christian faith or belong to a heterodox version of it, uh, who take neither of the you know people who take neither of the approaches we just mentioned, but for whom they're uh, they're just comfortable to say that the Bible and extra biblical reality are in tension. Uh, in fact, biblical scholars, I've noticed this, and I always find it a little peculiar, are sometimes even. Uh, uh, kind of bold about speaking of their intellectual bravery and simply admitting that the Bible is, you know, a bit primitive here or there, and that it cannot quite be reconciled to, to modern insight or sentiments. Um, 
and, and beyond simply noting your basic differences and theological commitments there, because that's, that's pretty obvious. Are there other things that you might say to address those coming from this perspective? I, I mean, I assume you've engaged them quite a bit. And so how do you, yeah. how do you engage people coming from that angle? On the very basic level, it's the recognition that we have two witnesses here and we need to harmonize their voices. We need to get a clearer sense of what they're witnessing to. Now, if we believe that the scriptural teaching on these sorts of subjects is just arbitrary, floating free of reality and these other things, then I think we do have a problem. It presents a particular picture of God that seems arbitrary as well. And I think it also leads us at certain points just to run up against the obstacle of the text itself. Because Paul can come out with things like, does not nature itself teach you? And, well, doesn't it teach you that thing? And often I think what we end up doing is creating this very artificial system of thought and teaching that floats free of nature, whereas Paul and the teaching itself actually connects itself with nature far more directly. So I think there are problems caused even internal to our reading of scripture if we do not actually try and reconcile it or connect it with the teaching of nature. Right. That doesn't mean there aren't tensions at certain points, that there aren't difficulties in reconciling, that there aren't periods of time where we might, for a season, have to wrestle with some sort of cognitive dissonance, not seeing exactly how things fit. But part of our confidence in scripture is found through this constant investigation of these things and the realization that usually these problems get resolved in surprising and very um, persuasive ways. And there are times when we just have to wrestle in the darkness and wait for that to happen. But when that, right. that has happened quite a lot, you begin to have a bit more confidence that this is a process worth undertaking because actually it leads to the dawning of some new insight at the end of it because you're actually taking these two witnesses seriously and saying, what is the deeper reality that is revealed in the conjunction of these two things? Right. It, yeah. Another way of saying that, I think, is that uh, it seems like, especially because we have, you know, well, in, in some ways, more than 2,000 years of the interpretation of Scripture to go on. And it's remarkable to think how much uh, th- that faith in Scripture has been rewarded. Uh, yep. Maybe that's one way of putting it over time. Um, and it, one thing I would say that has always struck me as peculiar, again, when I find these biblical scholars almost sort of boasting about their intellectual honesty by just recognizing the tension and feeling no need to reconcile it. I, I think I've also perceived in that same group of people some tremendous lack of imagination about what a reconciliation might look like. So they tend to, I mean, at least in my reading, uh, they tend to an overly reductive reading of sort of, you know, ancient Near Eastern Hebrews, uh, you know, a really small kind of projected uh, sense of what was possible for them to think um, and then also actually a very reductive view of what a modern person can think. Uh, yeah. And so it, it sounds intellectually honest, but it also has, has struck me as imaginatively calcified. Uh, and, and it's always struck me as part of the problem. And maybe one of the solutions is not just a sort of saying, here's more data for you to consider, but also to say like, uh, you know, you're, you're operating on, uh, on a, very, uh, 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 a very small color spectrum. <laughs> if you will, you know. And not, uh, actually, and, the tension is the most exciting place to live in. Yeah, to explore yeah. the questions that pull you in different directions and realizing 
working towards a resolution. And when you find that resolution and you have been honest with all those contentions, you've not just dissolved the tension or um, surrendered and thrown up your hands and say, it's just a tension. You've actually wrestled with it. What you have at the end is far more rewarding. And I think yeah. there are also ways in which these things can push back against each other. There are times when in the light of what we're discovering from nature and from um, natural law, we may be led to go back to scripture and realize that there are interpretive possibilities that right. may be not explored before. So for right. instance, the cosmology that many people might innocently have read into the biblical text um, in the ab after the advent of modern um, cosmology, I think there are many ways in which you can go back to the text and think after Galilee, after Copernicus, after these other characters, how can we read this differently? It, does the text leave a path open for us? Are we doing violence to the text if we read it this way? And right. often I think what you find is, no, there are ways in which we can be faithful to the text and also recognize these natural realities and then bring them into a very fruitful dialogue realizing right. that there are ways in which the text can highlight some of the limitations of these new ways of seeing things, not just bow yeah. before them and we have to um, convert the text into this sort of ventriloquist dummy of the modern science, but actually right. the text can prevent, present us with an alternative perspective upon the same reality. Yes, yeah, I think that's, I think that's really insightful that, yeah, sometimes we can be, we can be sort of, driven back into the text. And often, I think one way of putting that or one way of saying what's at stake there is that uh, the way you put it is that we sort of sometimes walk away with a sort of innocent reading of the text, given sort of background knowledge that we have. Um, but the text can, uh, when we're pushed back into the text, as it turns out, it's not just that we sort of reconcile with the text, uh, rather the, the act of digging deeper into the text actually sort of you, you wind up finding more insight. You, you take it more seriously. And I think, I think one way of describing that situation is that when, when more is at stake for us in a kind of traditional reading or a, maybe a traditional reading is even overstating it, but in a kind of default reading if you will, yeah. when, when more at stake for us, when more becomes at stake for us when we when in that reading, uh, we wind up having to go back and be a lot more careful, more careful perhaps than our ancestors were in some cases, because, again, because more is at stake for us at a certain, on a certain register. Uh, but when we do that, it's not as though the ideas that were just, as you put it, being violent to the text, but actually we're kind of mining it and we start to see new things, things that have been there all along and, and, and things perhaps that if some church fathers have even picked up along the way, but never became sort of a big prominent theme. And so, uh, you know, as you put it, yeah, it's kind of exciting. And it's almost something that I think, uh, you know, you can't know that this can occur unless you've seen it. Uh, you, yep. almost get the, you almost get the sense that you know, a lot of people who sort of throw up their hands, as you put it, uh, have never actually done this. <laughs> have never actually seen the Bible do this for them. Uh, I found this just with the reading of the text within itself in terms of its typological character and other things like that, when people approach the text, often when they see weird things in the text, there are lots of weird things in the text, things that stick <laughs> yeah. out, seem strange, seem often like contradictions or some problem within the text or some extraneous and um, superfluous detail. 
when you actually investigate those things, those are the things that tend to lead to deep insights into the underlying structure of the text and the way that certain things are connected to each other. And I've found the most rewarding thing to do is to register the weird things in the text and to investigate them, just wrestle with them over a long period of time. And right. you find it leads to blessing um, when you wrestle with the text and it right. leads to the dawn of something new. Yeah. Um, and so it's precisely through not shrugging off the challenge of the text, but actually throwing yourself into it and saying, I believe that this text is good and I will not let it go until it blesses me. That is huh. something that I find yeah. very rewarding. Yeah. Oh, that's fantastic. Uh, all right, let's, uh, let's, let's uh, get a bit more concrete then. We'll, we'll, we'll talk about uh, Genesis and gender in a moment, but preeminent among your hats uh, and perhaps your most official hat uh, is the hat of biblical scholar. And so as a, as a sort of transitional question, what are some, some basic ways that you think we need to approach scripture to understand it well? I mean, we've talked already a bit about the relationship between biblical and extra biblical information, uh, but say more about uh, what you think might be a helpful way just to approach scripture in general. What, what maybe are some ways that we tend to approach scripture that can tempt us toward, you know, that inflexibility of imagination we were talking about? Here I've often returned to the illustration of uh, Marco Polo and his encounter with the unicorn. So Marco Polo went to the Far East and as a man of his time, he expected to see strange and wonderful beasts. And sure enough, as he was passing through Java on the way back home, he encountered the unicorn, but he was a bit surprised because he was expecting this um, graceful horse-like creature with a long slender horn. And in fact, what he encountered was something entirely different. It had a hide like a buffalo, it had a face more like that of a warthog, it had a short stubby horn, and it had feet that resembled well, more like those of an elephant, and it was black rather than white. And in all these other respects, it did not look what he was expecting to see. Of course, he saw the rhinoceros, but right. he had these existing categories that huh. prevented him from paying attention to what was in front of him. And I think that's often what we find when we're reading scripture, that we come to scripture with a whole host of categories mm -hmm. and other things that just get in the way of seeing what the text is. And so our most, most important task is almost to put our questions to one side and to be attentive. So the primary task when we come to scripture is to listen, to hear what the text is actually saying, to see the questions that emerge from the text itself. Now, if we're coming, for instance, to Genesis, dominated by the questions of modern scientific debates about creation evolution, for instance, you're not right. actually going to see the message of Genesis itself, which is not fixated upon those questions one way or another. Right. In the same way, if you're coming to the text with the pressing questions of the gender debate, you probably won't see the text on its own terms you'll struggle to see beyond a few proof texts that seem to speak more directly to your questions. But your questions, as they have framed the text, have prevented the text from presenting its own form to you. And so the first thing that I would do is to practice disciplines of attention. Now, for me, that involves reading the text many times over without actually asking any questions, actually just listening again and again and again mm. until 
questions start to emerge from the text itself, because the text has a lot of odd features to it. And there are ways in which stories are told. It's like putting to together a jigsaw puzzle. If you're doing a jigsaw puzzle, it begins with, among other things, attention. You turn over all the pieces. Then you get together the edge pieces. You look for the corner pieces. Now, what you're doing there is you're focusing in part upon the image upon the picture, but you're also focusing upon the structural elements. So the corner and the edge pieces have a particular structure to them. And so even if you can't see where they fit in in terms of the picture on the pieces, you can tell by virtue of the structure where they belong. And in the same way with scripture, there are structural elements that will often give us a sense of the deeper connections and relationships between things. And so we're paying attention to the structure, we're paying attention to the image upon or the content of a particular text. And just that process of attentiveness, you find meanings emerge. It's not just a matter of um, going to a text and having an impression hit us, nor is it a matter even of interpretation in terms of key questions. It's mm. a process where the text gradually comes into view through a process of attentive investigation. Now, as time goes on through that process, you'll find yourself asking more questions, but the questions are primarily those that have emerged from the text itself, not ones that have come from outside. Oh, that's, that's really helpful. Uh, that's, a, that's a great metaphor. Um, let's uh, let's uh, almost get to Genesis and gender, but, but before we do that, I just wanna, I wanna speak about gender for a moment, just a little more broadly. Uh, you've, you've obviously done uh, an enormous amount of writing on gender debates, and I think part of what you want to communicate to a modern audience is that the, the text of Genesis really does contain deep insight into the nature of the sexes, uh, insights that if we, if we have eyes to see them uh, are reflected in the world of our, of our actual experience. Uh, but uh, one of the hang-ups there uh, is that uh, this is a difficult topic for us at the get-go, uh, because we're we're confused in the modern era about gender, and so before we sort of look at the text itself or talk about that, uh, what why why does most of my and and probably even your generation I, I suppose we're not terribly different generations, uh, <laughs> but why do we why do we actually feel like the difference between the sexes beyond mere biology is not all that obvious, and in fact uh, it's probably less obvious to us than it is even to our parents' generation. Uh, what, what, what forces do you think are at play in, in that, you know, modern confusion about this? Yeah, I think there are a number of um, forces that have changed the way that we relate to these questions. They don't have an immediacy to us. They're not obvious to us. The fact that we've had debates about same-sex marriage in recent decades in the U.S. and the U.K., it would have been unthinkable in about 40, 50 years ago. It was only just emerging as an issue about 30 years ago. And the fact that within such a short period of time, we've been able to accept completely different conceptions of marriage, what it means to be male or female. Now we think about, for instance, the NHS remarking that um, in one of their things that um, biological sex being that which is assigned to you at birth, I think, my biological sex was not assigned to me, <laughs> right. it was just recognized. <laughs> right. And often what I think we're seeing is a detachment of humanity from the gravity of reality. And 
here I think of, for instance, the experience of an astronaut that's propelled into space and exists in the microgravity of, of Earth orbit, of the Earth's orbit. And within that context, they're experiencing several dawns in a single day. They're experiencing a lack of gravity acting upon their body. And the result of these things can be the weakening of their muscles, a sense of nausea. They can struggle sleeping. And in many ways, we're experiencing a similar thing where the world within which these realities have gravity and make sense is increasingly one that we're abstracted from in various ways. So much of our life is existing within abstract systems, um, structures that are providing for us in a way that we're operating according to rules and techniques established by institutions, by corporations, by other um, things that are operating according to a, a universal system um, that is very much established by modern liberalism or modern um, technocracy of some type. The other thing that I think we have is, for instance, what it means to be online, where gender doesn't really register online in the same way. Um, right. On that basic biological level, we aren't bodies online. Um, right. And so, so much of our lives are existing in these realms where biology has a tenuous purchase. And as a result, we're increasingly floating free from the things that would bring us back to the gravity of reality. Now, what you find is when people actually experience that gravity, often it brings them down to earth to an extent. When they get married, have children, when they settle right. down, grow up and go through these different cycles of life, they begin to maybe settle a bit more into things that seemed abstract and detached from them in the past. So that, I think that's part of the problem. I think there's also the ideological problem of the structures of modern, modern liberalism that really make it difficult for us to process differences, salient differences. Now, being male and female, it's about the two-ness of humanity, that there, is, there are two different modes of humanity, and it's very you can't collapse humanity into an ultimate one. Now, that sense that humanity has two hands, it has two eyes, it has two ears, and reality is always experienced from one or the other, it makes it difficult for us to understand in terms of modern ideology, which is very much reducing things to these more absolute categories. Right. And there, I think, the contrast between scripture and modern ideology is quite pro profound. Scripture is constantly talking about the diversity and the variegation mm. of creation, not just as a surface um, veneer upon a fundamental interchangeability and fungibility, which is, I mean, fungibility and interchangeability are the foundation of modern society, that you can plug and play individuals of either sex and whatever background into different organizations and societies, and they are interchangeable and fungible. And it doesn't really matter, even when it comes to marriage, that you can reverse the sexes, you can have two of the same sex together, and it doesn't really make any difference. We have the idea of the fundamental, fungible and interchangeable individual. That's what lies at the very bottom. That's the unit of humanity. Whereas scripture, right. there is the fundamental unit of humanity is male and female and there's a fundamental two-ness to the fundamental unit. Right. And that is very difficult, I think, for us to understand. 
particularly when our society is built around these universalizing structures that scale up, that transplant, that can be expanded or contracted. And it's based upon the fungibility of the unit of the individual. And when you find that male and female are very different, that is at odds with our liberalism. And we tend to push back against it because it will mean that there will be discrimination against men or women within these systems that are designed for interchangeable units of individuals. Um, moving on to the text of Genesis, then, how would you say that this text surprisingly illuminates the, male of, the, the meaning of male and female for, for we modern persons? Well, I'll begin by just looking at the context in which we're created. We're created at the end of a sequence of different creation days. And those days have an order and a pattern to them. Many people have pointed to the poetic literary character of Genesis 1 as an argument against its relationship to the objective world of reality. But part of what it's doing is presenting the objective world of reality as one that has these analogies, these structures, these symmetries, and that it is a sort of dance of reality. The days of creation begin with God striking up a beat, evening, morning, evening, morning. And that goes through the whole of the creation days, that they're all following evening and morning, first day, second day, etc. And then there are these different types of creation. So God creates in the first three days very much through acts of forming. The original creation, you have God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth is formless and void and darkness is over the face of the deep. There's a problem there. There's a lack of form, but there's also an emptiness. It's void. And God addresses those problems one by one. First, the formlessness on the first three days, and then the voidness on the second three days. And those first three days, it's the division formed between um, the light and the darkness. And that division is a temporal difference, a temporal distinction. It's between the state of the day and the state of the night. It's not just right. an object of light created in the, in the sky. Hmm. Then the second day, there's a division between the heavens and the waters beneath created by the firmament. And then the third day, there's earth and sea. And in each of these realms that are formed, there's a sort of interplay between them. So it's so great that Earth is structured by these sorts of binaries, but these binaries are binaries with interplay between them. And each one of them describes a context, a realm, and those realms are charged with life as these things are bound up together. On the second three set of three days, days four to six, God fills the realms that he has created on the first three days. So the second um, set of days corresponds as if in a panel to the first three days. On day four, God fills um, the, he places the sun, moon and stars as lights to divide the day from the night. So they fill out what is created on day one, the creation of the light then becomes filled out in the creation of sun, moon, and stars, doing the same task of dividing time. Then day five, there is the filling of the waters beneath with the fish and the filling of the firmament with the birds that fly across the face of the firmament. And then on day six, there's again two creation acts, as you see on day three. There's a parallel between these things. And God creates 
land animals and then humanity to fill the land. And in, in that we're seeing already there is a structure starting to emerge here, a pattern of great binaries within creation that structure the world, patterns of forming and filling different types of creative work. So the first three days involve works of naming, taming, structuring, ordering, dividing, giving um, this pattern and structure and, and order and form to reality. And then the next three days are days of delegating to children, as it were, of days of filling, of glorifying, of perfecting, of giving life and communion and all these sorts of things. So day four is the delegation of the rule of the heavens to the sun, moon and stars. They're the children that fill the heavens. And then you see the delegation of the realm, other realms to the fish and the birds, that they will populate those realms. And then humanity created on day six is created in some ways parallel to the sun and the moon. The sun and the moon rule the day and the night. And in the same way, man and woman are given to rule the earth and the sea. And that creation is a similar sort of establishment of dominion upon a realm within God's world, a realm that represents God's own dominion more generally over his creation. So at the very outset, we're seeing some sorts of patterns emerging. We're also seeing the way that God acts in distinctive ways in different acts of creation. So on the first day, God speaks, let there be light. And there was light. It's a, an act of transcendent speech. And we can see the way that that is described as, in some ways, the most fundamental act of creation. God calls creation into existence out of nothing, that transcendent word. And then you have acts of formation. God forms a firmament. God forms other things within the world where he fashions things. And then the final great mode of creation is filling and enlivening, giving um, that sort of impulse and power and potential to reality. As God says, for instance, let the earth bring forth living creatures. Right. The, the earth is an active participant in this. Now there, I think we're seeing something about, there is a, an almost Trinitarian pattern, Trinitarian pattern there. The father is the one who speaks forth reality in this transcendent way with his word, capital W, and then we have the one who holds all things together in being and order. The one who structures all of reality is the, the sun, the word, the logos. And then we have the spirit who fills and pervades all things with life and power and the ability to reach their telos. And we're already seeing all of this within the text. This is part of the poetic form of what's being described in Genesis chapter one. It's not just a bow blow blow-by-blow blow account of what happened, what went down on those days. It's an account of the structure of reality. The theological structure of reality is reality participates in God and also as reality is re related in different ways to God's creative activity. But beyond that, humanity is created to be the image of God, to be co-creators. Now that concept of being created in the image of God, I think, is one that is often the only thing that people go to. People focus upon that because that seems to deal with humanity directly. But yet we should read that against the background of what else has been discussed in that chapter. God is the creative God. He's the God who creates and rules his creation. And 
God is preparing humanity to exercise that sort of creative rule with him. In the next chapter, we see the same sort of pattern played out again. There's a formlessness and voidness. The earth has not yet been tilled. There's um, no grass has grown up or no um, tree has grown up, etc. And there's another problem which there's no man to till the earth and the whole earth is watered with this, the whole face of the earth watered with this indiscriminate surge of water or the mist or however you want to translate that term. There you're seeing a return to the pattern of the very beginning of, of Genesis chapter one. There's water covering the, the deep, covering the whole face of the earth. Now it's a surge or mist of water that covers the whole face of the earth. And God starts to create First of all, he creates the man. The man is, as it were, to be light for the world. Then he creates a firmament, a garden that is distinct from the rest of the creation, that's marked out, a bounded place that will be within the wider creation. Then on day three, the equivalent of day three, the waters come out from the, the garden and they water the land. And there's a gathering together of waters in these rivers. And the rivers divide the lands so that the lands can be named. And then as the second act of day three, the garden gives rise to all these different trees and vegetation. And then day four, the man is placed in the garden, just as the lights are placed in the firmament. And then five and six, the animals brought together to Adam to be named. And day, um, the end of day six, the second action, the creation of the woman. And then finally, rest in the garden together. So there's a connection between the Sabbath and marriage rest already within the structure of the text that we'll get to the very end of Revelation. We'll see many of these themes recapitulated in the final chapters. Once again, a garden, but now a garden city. Once again, a man and a woman, but now there's a bridal, there's a great bridal feast. There's this wedding supper of the marriage supper of the lamb. And all these things, I think, are already there in principle, in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. Now, when we're reading that more carefully, I think a number of things start to emerge. First of all, we see connections between different things. So, for instance, first of all, we see a connection between God's rule within the creation and the man and the woman and their rule and action within the creation. There are different ways in which they are active within the world. The man is created outside of the garden, he has a particular connection to the land. He's the Adam from the Adamah. He's the one who has to, he's the one created to till the earth as a servant of the earth, as the one to prepare God's um, world, God's temple realm, as it were, as this appointed servant. He's also the one placed within the garden to divide good from evil. He's given the law concerning the tree. The woman is not given that law directly but he's given this charge over that particular realm to guard the boundaries. He's also the one who's told to tend and to guard the garden. That's the same sort of words that we have used of the task of the Levites and the priests in places like Numbers and Leviticus. Right. And so they're significant terms. Later on, what I think you see also is God prepares the man for a particular task of working within the world. God is the father and he's training his son in his trade. So God is the one who names and structures the world. Um, the days one to three are the only days on which naming events occur. 
So all the things mm. created on day four to six, they've not yet been named. That's a task left to be done. And God prepares the man for that task. He gives him that particular, delegates that particular task to him on, in the second account of creation in Genesis chapter two. And then you have the creation of the woman to address a problem or a limitation in the man. And I think here it can be helpful to go back and think about the ways that the task of the man particularly resonates with the tasks of the first three days of creation. And the ways that the tasks of the second set of three days, days four to six, particularly resonate with the tasks of the woman. What are they both doing? The woman is particularly going to be the one who brings life and communion. She'll be the one who brings children to whom the task of ruling can be delegated. She'll be the one who brings beauty and perfection. She'll be the one who glorifies what has been formed, who fills what has been formed. Whereas the man is particularly tasked with the task of formation. Now, of course, they both assist each other in those tasks. Right. As we go through the text, I think we can see that the two hands of humanity, as they work together, are delegated with um, different aspects to lead in different aspects of a common task. And right. even within the text there, I think you're seeing some of this emerge. And as we go through scripture further, I think we'll see that picture become even clearer, but it's already there in incipient form. Right. That's, that's really, really insightful. That's, that's really helpful. I think, I think one thing you said in the past, and I wonder if you could comment on this, is that often when we, when we talk about the relationship between the sexes, uh, we, we emphasize the kind of face-to-face -face relationship a lot, you know, sort of what are your roles over against one another. Uh, uh, but your emphasis when you're reading Genesis seems to be, and, I th and again, I think you've said this before, that, that uh, uh, it's really about a common task they have in the world. That's its emphasis is actually sort of what's outside of both of them that they're doing in a, in a complementary way. Uh, yes, I think that's right. And one of the problems that we have if we read Genesis chapter one in a very anthropocentric way is you get to Genesis chapter two and you can read everything in, in a very, in a very androcentric way. It all centers upon the man. The woman is created as his sidekick, the, bat, the Robin to right. his Batman, or maybe his secretary or understudy. <laughs> but there are all sorts of problems when you read the text that way. It doesn't actually do justice to the text. And it also leads to a denigration of women more generally. And so I think when we look at the text more closely, what do we see? Why is the man created? The man is created to till the earth, to serve the earth. He's particularly created in association with the Adamah from which he's formed. And so later on, when we see the curse, that is his particular realm of activity. He's driven out into that. He's ordered out into that realm. He's one who is particularly oriented towards that reality. And that provides the context for the creation of the woman. The woman comes to help the man, not just as one that he relates to face to face, but as one he relates to shoulder to shoulder as well. As they're acting within the world, their marriage exists not merely for their mutual satisfaction, for dealing with the man's loneliness problem. It's not just, the woman is not just created to deal with the man's issue, his personal issue, but to deal with the insufficiency of the man for the task that he has been given. And so the man right. needs someone to come alongside him who's different from him, who can 
do those things which he cannot do. And in that respect, that they could work together to actually fulfill the task for which they've been, uh, for which they've been created. And, and it sounds like a, a part of what you emphasize is, uh, is, is the idea that we can use the language of dominion uh, to talk about the the woman proper, you know, sometimes in in certain conservative circles, this is not language we we use very much. But the idea that the woman has her own, uh, and again, nobody has their own in the sense that the other the other sex has nothing to do with it. But there's a sense of sovereignty that belongs to the woman relative to a, her particular task and sort of sphere uh, that I think maybe is sometimes lacking in some of these discussions. Uh, yes, yeah, so I think I think there are problems that we face on both sides. On the one hand, you have people who are having a very hierarchical approach where you have the man is the boss and then the woman is underneath the boss and God is above them all. Um, that's a common perception within certain circles. And I don't think that that is helpful. On the other hand, you have this attempt to create this common humanity that exists behind man and woman that ultimately Man and woman are something that's beneath there. There's some fundamental individual nature or something that is common to us all. And that ultimately in that respect, we are interchangeable. And I don't think that does justice to things that at the very heart of humanity, there is a duality that mankind is inescapably male and female. And there's no getting behind that fact. There's no more fundamental reality to humanity right. than the fact that we are either one or the other. Now, the dignity there is found in the fact that those two things are created together for each other for a common end. And that end is one that is seen, among other things, in dominion. Now, that dominion language, I think this is where people can really get concerned. That dominion language is particularly associated with the man. The man mm. is created as the head. The image of God language is particularly associated with the man as well. The man is created as the image and glory of God, as it's talked about in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 7. The woman is the glory of the man. Now, that seems quite shocking to us, that statement. Elsewhere right. in um, Genesis chapter 5, God, is, God creates man, Adam, in his image, and Adam begets a son in his image and likeness, Seth. And so there's a filial dimension to that. Right. And I think it can be helpful there to think about deeper resonances that we have, for instance, in the New Testament. The son is described as the image of the father. The spirit is not described as the image of the father. That's an interesting thing to observe, mm. that we shouldn't presume that simply that all the weight of the dignity of humanity is to be placed upon that particular term terminology. Rather, the terminology of image is a particular way of relating to God, a particular way of symbolizing his rule and dominion within the world. And so our attempt to find some sort of commensurable way of presenting man and woman as equal in, in that sort of sense, that ultimately they cash out to the same thing, I think that misses the point. Rather, what Genesis is teaching us is that in their very difference, that is where their dignity is to be found. And that dignity is not to be found in a way that places one as more important than the other or ultimately worthy of more dignity than the other. But that dignity is of a different type. 
there I think we can also think of the modes of God's creation that we've already recognized in Genesis chapter one, how those are associated with, as we've seen, different persons of the Trinity. The father is the one who speaks the transcendent word. The son is the one who holds all things together, who forms things, who's the word that pro provides the order and the logic of reality. When the spirit is the one who gives life and breath and the one who animates all things. Now, in the same way, I think we should be very wary of drawing direct connections here, but there are analogies between the forms of activity that man and woman are given to perform. The acts of filling are particularly associated with the woman. And in scripture, I think you see a particular resonance with the work of the spirit and the work of women. The work of the spirit is that by which the son is conceived in the womb of Mary. The spirit is mm. the one who overshadows. The spirit is the one who groans within us. The spirit is the one by whom we are begotten. The spirit is the one who stands mm. with the bride. The spirit is the one who forms the bride. The spirit is the one who um, creates God's home in us. And in all these ways, I think we're seeing something about how there is a dignity in that difference. And that difference is not to be found in saying there's a common term behind everything. Um, in right. one sense, there is. We're mm. all human beings, but that right. humanity is inescapably dual. Yes. All right. Uh, getting to maybe a, a practical question here. It, se it seems that part of what you've identified in a, in a close reading of Genesis is that part of it is just that all of its details actually matter. <laughs> and and yep. that in aggregate, they, they paint a sort of portrait or structure about the, 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 the symbolic resonances, which are which are differently represented in the world of males and the world of females. But it's one thing to say this. It's another thing to say what that actually looks like in any particular practice or any standard of masculinity and femininity or culture or custom. And of course, I mean, it's, it's, it's sort of commonplace to say that nature is always inflected to some extent through custom. Uh, but part of what complicates our own circumstance in, in modernity where customs are extremely mixed uh, is that custom is then a less and less clear guide on many fronts. And so in your view, what are, what are some things to, to keep in mind for those who are perhaps, uh, per perhaps tend to overscrupulousness on this front? Uh, and then I'll ask a question about those who tend in the opposite direction at the moment. <laughs> yes, I think scripture primarily acquaints us with the deeper realities. If you're approaching scripture as a system of, rules and roles, you'll often struggle to make sense of it. What it's trying to present you with is the deeper reality. And as you understand that deeper reality, you'll be able to start to trace the way that that deeper reality is operative, even in situations of confusion and disorder and situations where it's not entirely clear, it's nebulous, how it's actually playing out. And so I think taking that within our context, we are seeing on the one hand, as you mentioned, people who just throw up their hands, they can't see any order in things. They can't see any way in which this can be brought to bear upon reality. And others who in reaction against a sense of disorder are doubling down on um, a sort of hyper legalistic structure, a means by which they'll find an extreme adherence to order overcoming the chaos of the world that seems to surround them. So I think as we understand the logic of scripture, one of the first things that we'll do is learn to read reality. 
to be able to see how these patterns are already operative within our situations, even right. though we may not have realized it. And there, I think, um, we will be able to also see that the scriptural teaching is not primarily um, prescriptive, telling you, you must do this, you must do that. It's primarily descriptive. And the prescriptions arise from the descriptions. So, for instance, we're told that the man is the head. We're not told that the man should be the head. That doesn't mean that the man right. shouldn't be the head, but it means right. this is just reality. And as you learn to understand reality, you can work with the grain of reality. You can see it operative within your contexts as you begin to be attentive to that. It clues you in. It attunes you to reality. And that's what we're discussing at the beginning of our discussion, that unless we have that sense of attunement to reality, we really struggle with these sorts of things. Right. They will escape us. All right. So that's really insightful. Um, moving on to uh, the other side then, I'm going to presume that you've, you've had experiences where you communicate some of this material and a, and a person whom you don't think is driven by ill will uh, nevertheless still feels a bit off-put by the notion that, that nature goes deeper than biology. Uh, maybe for such person, Genesis is irreducibly normative rather than descriptive and therefore a bit alienating uh, for those whose, whose natural instincts, as they think of it, don't seem to fit those kinds of scripts. In such cases, what, what bits of data do you think might help people to see that these structures manifest in their own life and world and that, and that perhaps they miss it? Uh, and especially relevant here would be to ask how you might try to, to render this a vision that uh, they might uh, see as beautiful and good for them. Much of the time, for me, it's just teaching people to observe what's in front of them, that this is actually operative within your world, although you may not have noticed it. If you pay attention to the way that men and women relate to each other, the way that they relate within their own sex, but with the other sex, you can see these things playing out. And unless you've actually paid attention to the dysfunctions that arise when it isn't working out well, where people aren't actually paying attention to what's going on, you can't actually see, um, you may struggle to see what the good alternative is. And so I, I generally start with that and say that what we have here is not primarily a set of rules and roles. We have a basis of understanding of reality that can encourage us to be creative in our pursuit of things that are good. So there are many different ways you can play out these things within different contexts. It doesn't always have to look like the same thing. And as you go from culture to culture, even Christian cultures, you'll see many ways in which the reality of male and female following the fundamental pattern is played out in different forms. It's like music. You can have the fundamental principles of music allow for a great deal of creativity. And from marriage to marriage, men and women are different from each other, but each individual man is different from every other individual man, and likewise with women. And there's a certain degree of creativity and finding a way of working together and creating, negotiating a, a sort of settlement perhaps, or negotiating a situation that actually yields to the good of both, and also relating them to the larger structure of male and female, which is not it's not just two individuals that come together in marriage and in society. It's the whole union of male and female more generally, that we stand as representatives of our sex as we relate to others of the other sex. And also, we are those who are bound up with groups 
of people of our own sex. Now, as you've thought about it on that level, I think it allows you to maybe get beyond people's initial um, instinctive resistance to, first of all, stereotypes, which tend to arise very much from an individualistic way of framing these things. It's just about individuals, because we tend to think in terms right. of individuals. To think in terms of rules and roles, that's another problem that people have. They're thinking in terms of a set structure, maybe imported from the first century, that that is the timeless structure. And again, society has changed. There are ways in which we have to be creative in being faithful to the scripture in a situation that is not, does not have a scriptural precedent. What does it look like to arrange a business that honors the difference between men and women? Now, we don't really have much guidance from the ancient world for that. We have some principial um, approaches that will enable us to see these things more clearly and to act within them more effectively. But it takes a lot of creativity and thought. And so to guide people towards the good, I generally try to avoid presenting a fully-fledged vision. What I do is I present the reality in front of them. I try and show them some of the friction points, some of the areas where things are going wrong. And then having brought those things to their attention, present them with different ways in which by taking the fundamental reality that scripture discloses into account, those things could be dealt with in a far more dignifying, glorified and positive way that would be one that was um, actually yielding positive relationships between the sexes rather than the antagonism that we so often experience. Right, right. That's really helpful. What sources uh, have been the most helpful for you? And, and here I'm particularly thinking of sources that, uh, you know, uh, describe maybe, uh, if I could put it this way, maleness sort of internally and femaleness internally in a way that you found helpful. Of course, it's easier for us as, as, as guys uh, to read the male sources and say, yeah, that, yeah. that one works. And, you know, when we're reading about women, it's, you know, it's a, it's a strange world. You know, it's a, and, and in fact, what's curious, though, is often it's those, it's those texts that are the strangest that uh, wind up being the most insightful, like, oh, okay, that, that helps me understand what's going on. On uh, that front, you know. I found it very interesting to read transition narratives of trans people. Oh. When they go on hormones of the other sex, just how much their inner world can change, um, how much mm. they perceive the world, how much they experience the world. And there's a piece on This American Life a few years ago with some woman who went on testosterone, a trans person, and just describing her experience of suddenly having this rocket-powered sex drive and the complete <laughs> difference in her experience of sexuality, the way she became far less um, narrative in the way that she structured things and a lot more um, focused on action and things like that, the way that she experienced her body and her presence within the world, that changed. Now, there are many examples like this. It's a fairly wide literature, although not commonly known or read. Um, but it's helpful to think about things like that and think about maybe there's something here that even in forms of dysfunction and sin, we are seeing something about mm. the differences and someone experiencing some aspect of both sides of what it means to be man and woman. Now, that's clearly not 
an ideal situation. It's something that you're not going to be experiencing the full reality of what it means to be a man just by going on testosterone. But there is something there that helps someone to see maybe peep over the fence and maybe recognize something about right. a different party. The other thing is recognizing just the importance of just spending time with watching people, listening to people who have the experience of the other sex, read um, the experience of people who are describing their way of looking at the world, their life world. And often that's part of it that I've described the sexes as akin to the two hands of humanity or the two eyes of humanity. And it's like closing one of your eyes and just looking through one of them. You see the world, it looks very similar, but try it with the other eye and there's a slightly different perspective. And that slight variance of perspective is one that when you put those two things together, it can be very illuminating. So I think as men and women, we often depend upon the pressure that the other sex puts upon us with their perspective upon the world, that they can actually fulfill something of our purpose in our own identity as male or female by the pressure that they put upon us to reckon with, to negotiate with, and to um, comport ourselves towards their perspective as well. And I've found, for instance, the, the idea that men can grow to maturity merely by relating to other men is mm. quite mistaken. Often <laughs> what a woman will bring out in a man is different aspects of his masculinity that tether that masculinity to a broader purpose of humanity. So the man who's able to learn to be gentle with and loving with kids is probably not someone who's learned those lessons from other men. He's probably someone who's learned those lessons from his wife and from other women in his life. And there, I think we need to recognize that the other sex will serve as our guides into many areas of human life and, and our labor as God's people within the world. On the other hand, we need to spend time with our own sex and we'll learn certain things from being in single sex environments. We'll be able to explore our strengths and develop things off each other. But I do find that can be very helpful. Just that involves a lot of listening. It involves a lot of interacting and yeah. actually trying to take on the other perspective, not just argue against it or um, <laughs> be resistant to it and see it as an imposition upon your world. There's something good about being able to interact with and to share um, in a common task of per perception with the other sex and a common right. task of labor with two hands too. Right. One of the things that, that, that I metaphor interest is interest. One of the reasons that that metaphor is interesting to me, I'm thinking here of a, you know, Julian Marius uses this language of like, you know, sexual coordinates of existence, that sort of thing. But his perspective, and it sounds like yours, is that, you know, we tend as modern people perhaps to say that, you know, there's this huge piece of life that's kind of awe gendered. And then in various spheres, all of a sudden sort of a gendered perspective gets added on top of that. Uh, and yet, uh, you know, there are others who, who claim, no, uh, if we could experience what you think of as common from another person's perspective, from another gender's perspective, you'd see that gender sort of colors the whole picture. And in fact, yep. the eyes work that way. You know, your eye, you get the color tint of each of your eyes is a little bit different. Uh, and it's only, you know, the only thing that makes you see perfectly is seeing them to get, you know, having those two things together. Uh, but you it goes all the way down. 
you recently recommended to me a book by um, Harold Rayleigh on the um, reflecting upon creation and some of the narratives that we have um, in Genesis and then working out from that for some greater reflections upon society. And he observes, for instance, the difference between feminine and masculine centuries. So he argues, for instance, that the yes. um, 18th century is a feminine century, particularly in France, and found in part around the close environs of the, the palace, that it leads to a context where women's engagement in polite society is very potent in shaping what society is like more generally. Whereas the next century completely changed in character. It's a far more masculine century. I think we see that in society, even in our own day and age. There was a significant shift at the beginning of this century from a very masculine society to an increasingly feminine one with the rise of social media. And paying attention to those sorts of things, are, I mean, scripture alerts us to those realities. And the more that we pay attention to the deeper dynamics of reality and the significance of the difference between male and female and how it plays out in every area of life, we're always working from, as you mentioned, a sexual perspective that we're embedded within life from a particular vantage point. And it's inescapable in everything that we're doing. I'm always acting as a man. I'm always acting from that particular vantage point, from that particular position. And as a result, there are certain things that um, I'll do that will be, I mean, everything I do will be colored in some ways by that. And some things right. will be very, very colored by it. Right. I think you see that just within our forms of society. There are certain forms of society that you can have a man and a woman doing the same thing, and it just has a completely different flavor. It's not right. the same thing because it's flavored by our differences. Right, right. Well, this is this has been great. Uh, I'll, I'll just ask this final question then. What what are some what are some questions that you think we should be asking about uh, any of the things we've talked about, but don't tend to ask? What are another way of saying that? Or what are some under discussed topics in your judgment on this stuff? And maybe some of the immediately urgent pastoral tax, tasks at hand relative to you know all of these questions. I think perhaps the most urgent task that we have today is to engage in the creative work of developing some sort of healthy negotiation between male and female in society, both in a way that gives dignity to men and women over against each other, but also that gives dignity to that difference as such. Um, I think we've struggled with this increasingly as we've moved towards a more technological system-based society that's based upon universal systems. We've tried to squeeze gender out of society to these edges. And so I think that's something that we're increasingly wrestling with because our gender is popping up in surprising and often frustrating ways. And mm. so it takes a work of creativity, I think, to develop a new, um, a new way of harmonizing um, what it means to be men and women in the context of the workforce, in the context of modern society and its discourse and communities. This perhaps is one of the most urgent things that we face. Along with that, I would say that we are on the brink and already moving over the brink of a radical change to our understanding and apprehension of human nature with the development of new reductive um, reproductive technologies and processes 
I think we're seeing a new posture being adopted towards our most fundamental humanity. And that will have impact on what it means to be male and female. What does it mean to be female when we have artificial wombs, for instance? Right. Or when a man can have a child that's born um, using gametes taken from his skin cells to form an egg. We are living in a situation where many of these um, sci-fi scenarios, as they appear right. to us now, will become right. part of our real life. And thinking seriously about how we respond to that when they hit us, I think, is a pressing task for the church, church today. Right. That's, that's very, very helpful. Well, uh, thank you for joining us today. This has been, this has been wonderful. Uh, being being our sort of our, our our guinea pig interviewee for this uh, for this podcast, but uh, uh, with that, uh, I'll close this up. You've been listening to the Pilgrim Faith uh, podcast, and I'm Joseph Minnick. And until next time, we'll see you later. <laughs>